This is the Ellis Martin Report. When you hear us mention companies doing any kind of business, there's a large probability, if not a certainty, that the Ellis Martin Report is compensated for that mention. And now, here's Ellis Martin. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, the President and Chief Executive Officer of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. Sky Harbor Resources is a preeminent uranium and thorium exploration company with projects located in the prolific Athabasca Basin of Saskatchewan, Canada, which was ranked as the best mining jurisdiction to work in globally by the Fraser Institute in 2017. The company has been acquiring top-tier exploration projects at attractive valuations culminating in five uranium properties totaling approximately 200,000 hectares throughout the basin. In July 2016, Sky Harbor secured an option from Denison Mines to acquire a 100% interest in the Moore Uranium Project, now the flagship project, which hosts the high-grade Maverick Zone. The company is run by a strong management and geological team who are major shareholders with extensive capital markets experience as well as focused uranium exploration expertise in the basin. Hey, Jordan, welcome back to the program. Nice to have you on the air today. Thanks for having me again. As a shareholder of Sky Harbor, I'm very excited that the drill program is commencing at the Moore Uranium Project. Tell us all about what's going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. So we announced this morning we'll be commencing here shortly a 3,000-meter drill program at our flagship and high-grade Moore Uranium Project and is over on the east side of the Athabasca Basin, proximal to mining infrastructure, project that we've been focused on for the last several years. number of high-grade zones of uranium mineralization that have been discovered at the unconformity and in the sandstone. And more recently, we've been focused on finding deeper deposits in the underlying basement rocks. This is where most of the recent high-grade discoveries have been made in the Athabasca Basin. As we spoke in our last few interviews, we announced us pretty good results from our last drill program late last year. We had our longest continuous zone of uranium mineralization ever discovered at the project, 17 and a half meters of 0.72% U308. And within that 10 meters of 1% U308, 308, again, all in the basement rock. Very exciting result for us, given the relative infancy stage that the basement exploration and drilling process is at. And I think we've just scratched the surface to a much larger zone of mineralization at depth. We think with these upcoming drill programs, we will be able to delineate higher grade mineralization and zones in these basement rocks. So that we'll start with this 3000 meter program and 10 to 12 holes. We do have plans for another program following up on that later in the year. And then ultimately, we'll be working towards a maiden resource estimate towards the end of the year, early next year, as we continue tapping into higher grade zones of mineralization at what's called the Maverick Corridor. And just a quick note too, and as we announced in the news release, we do have plans for some exploratory drilling on some regional targets at the project, the one target area that we're going to do a little bit of work on, starting with some geophysics, which has just kicked off. It's called Grid 19. It's just about eight kilometers northeast of the Maverick corridor. So it's totally different conductive corridor and target area. What's interesting about it is it's on the eastern side of the project area. And over on that side, there's a big intrusive body called the Moore Lake Complex. And it's poorly understood. It hasn't seen a lot of historical exploration and work done. There's a lot of potential there. Usually when you see these intrusive bodies, you have the plumbing, if you will, for the deposition of deposits, mineral deposits, and wouldn't be 
surprised if we found other metals in there as well, like nickel and cobalt and even some copper. But we think there's uranium there and we're going to be drill testing that in this program as well. I see that you've mentioned copper values of up to 2.3%, which is fairly significant, but you're a uranium company. What do you do with assets like that when you find them? Do you call them uranium equivalent? It was an interesting discovery over 100 meters below the unconformity, so well into the basement rocks. But what it shows is that there's a strong mineralizing system at depth in the basement rocks. So you can think of it as an indicator mineral. So we know that there has been high-grade mineral deposition in these basement rocks. Seeing copper values like that and other indicator minerals is very positive. It shows that there's the potential for high-grade uranium. And so, as I mentioned, we will be following up on those results and continuing to drill test into these basement rocks. I think it's just a matter of time before we tag something that's very high-grade and much larger. And so keep an eye out for news flow from this program, which will be starting up shortly. Well, in my opinion, you've got three things going for you in addition to the great management team. You're about 10 miles or 15 kilometers away from Denison. You are in probably the best mining jurisdiction in the world for uranium, period. And you've got the highest grade of uranium on the planet as far as I know. It's all there. Look, the Athabasca Basin is really the only place in the world you want to be looking for uranium and developing project at the highest grade depository of uranium. It's been a mining district for many years. There's a lot going on up there right now. And there's been some notable discoveries more recently using some new exploration methods and thinking. And again, we want to emulate the success that other companies like NextGen and Fission and more recently ISO Energy have had. And, and, and there's not many companies. We talked about this earlier. There's not many active uranium companies out there. There's very few. So it's not a crowded sector. Money coming into the space, as we've seen more recently, only has a few names to go to. And just as a segue into an update on the macro picture and, and what's happening in the uranium mining sector, you've seen just in the last several weeks here and, and just even in the last few days, a number of mining companies purchase uranium directly in the spot market or from secondary supplies. So we saw Denison just in the last couple of days here announced $75 million financing to purchase a few million pounds in the spot market. Shortly after that, UEC announced a $30.5 million financing to purchase material. And this was all in the back of about a month, month and a half ago, Yellow Cake raising 140 million pounds to buy material and buy Yellow Cake. So it's an exciting time. The market's continuing to tighten. I think you'll see this trend of both mining companies and physical holding companies continuing to raise capital to buy uranium in the spot market and draw down secondary supplies and inventories. And ultimately, this is going to lead to, as I mentioned, a tightening of the market. And it's really going to ultimately force the hand of the utility companies that have to come back to the market that have to start contracting. And we don't need to wait to see the first few utility companies sign those higher price contracts. The mining companies and the physical holding companies uh, and the capital markets are doing that. And it's again, going to force their hand and it's going to create a very exciting environment for uranium investors. You can already see the energy market shifting after the new president was elected just a few months ago. We're moving away from fossil fuels, whether we like it or not, and we're moving into clean tech. We're moving into clean energy. Uranium has always been cleaner, maybe cleaner than it ever was, and it's reflecting the interest in the generalist market. We're getting investors from all walks of life, from all ends of the political spectrum, so it's almost like an agnostic sort of investment opportunity. And as a shareholder, I'm pretty pleased with the growth in the market lately. What do you attribute that? 
that too, other than the obvious that we've discussed. This new wave of interest that's come into the sector caught everyone in the industry by surprise, but we'll take it needless to say. And it was like you said, it was driven by what was seemingly a very short and quick turn in the sentiment around the election and started with the $1.7 trillion climate budget that the Biden administration has proposed. Obviously, within that, nuclear and the development of SMRs is included. But there were a number of countries last year that emphasized their plans to be carbon neutral and to decarbonize their electricity grids in the next several decades, the US being one of them, China being another, big economic powerhouses that are recognizing the climate crisis that we are facing and ultimately realize that in order to address it, they are going to have to decarbonize their grids. And in order to do that, as you and I have spoken about, you have to include nuclear. It's, it's as simple as that. And I think the market finally has woken up to that. And we're seeing a number of new nuclear proponents come out of the woodwork and big business leaders that are getting behind it. And I think you'll see that continue. And so this is obviously all very positive for the sentiment around the nuclear industry and as a result, the uranium mining industry. But you know, as we've talked about, you know, a lot of people aren't aware of the supply side restraints that we are currently facing. We've now seen a major supply side response play out over the last five years where you've had a lot of mines shut down. You've had a lot of project deferrals and production curtailment as a result of the low uranium price, which I'll note just ticked up two dollars in the last 24 hours, back up to $30 a pound, which again, still well below the average all-in global cost of production, but it's good to see the price moving in a pretty quick fashion with the $2 move. But again, you've seen this major supply side response play out because of the low prices, which was exacerbated by the pandemic, where at one point you had almost 50% of global primary mine supply offline. Even with all of these mine restarts and production ramping back up, you still have a structural supply deficit. The primary mine supply is still not going to meet global annual demand of about 180 to 185 million pounds annually. So even with the ramp up, you're still going to have to rely on inventories and secondary supplies. So again, at some point, there is a tipping point. And I think we're getting closer to that. And certainly with the recent actions of some of these companies and investors pouring money into the sector, people are recognizing that this inevitability of the uranium price starting to make big moves much higher, much like we've seen in previous bull markets, we're starting to see the early innings where money's coming in and it wants to take advantage of that opportunity. And so, like I said, it, it's exciting. It's a good time to be a uranium company. I think there's still a lot of runway given that the valuations are still relatively low. There's not many companies. We haven't seen dozens of new uranium companies pop up. That'll come later in the cycle, but still in the early innings. And uh, I think there's a lot of room to move from here. At what point do you entertain discussion with the majors? You're an exploration and development company, and you're probably a long way away from that. But I've seen these acquisitions happen very fast. At what point do you and the shareholders say, okay, well, let's talk about it? Look, it's a great question. And it's the ultimate goal, right? We would like to transact and get a deal done and be acquired by a larger company. I think the answer to that is we obviously feel like we have a lot of value we can add at the project level, both at our flagship project, More Lake, and with our partner companies at our other projects. And to, like I said, I think we're still in the early days of this uranium bull market. And ideally, you want to transact later on in the cycle and obviously want to get the best price possible. So it's something to keep an eye out for. We still have a lot of work that we can do here in the coming months and coming years. Let's remind our listeners of the share structure. 
Yeah, so there's about 104 million shares issued in outstanding. We trade around a 36, 37 million dollar valuation Canadian. So again, still a relatively low market capitalization. We've had a number of warrants exercised over the last several months. Uh, we're well capitalized now with about five million in cash and stock. As as you may recall, we've carried out or transacted on several of our projects with partner companies, option deals that bring in some cash and stock to Sky Harbor. So we're well-funded for all of our exploration plans at our flagship project, More Lake, this year. And we have partner companies funding the bulk of the exploration and development work at our other projects. Gordon, it's always great to catch up with you. And the market certainly is shining on Sky Harbor right now. Thanks so much for joining me today on the program. Thanks for having me, Ellis. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, President and CEO of Sky Harbor Resources, trading as SYH on the TSX Venture Exchange and SYHBF on the OTCQB in the U.S. For the Ellis Martin Report and Sky Harbor Resources, I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. EllisMartinReport.com I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Timothy Coe, the CEO of Entheon Biomedical, trading in the U.S. as ENTBF and in Canada on the CSE as ENBI. Entheon Biomedical is pioneering a leading-edge addiction recovery solution that harnesses and optimizes the therapeutic potential of the DMT molecule. Entheon exists to invert the addiction recovery ratio, turning the untreatable case and lost cause from the norm to the exception. The company is committed to the legal development of regulated, safe, and effective therapies and in educating the public and medical profession as to the efficacy of psychedelic protocols when clinically administered in the optimum set and setting. Tim, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining me today. Please be here, Ellis. Let's review recent Entheon news, specifically your just acquired subsidiary, Halugen. Halugen's proprietary psychedelic genetic test kit and technology platform has completed research and development and is now nearing commercial production. Describe the kit and how important it is in identifying whether patients are or are not candidates for ethical clinical use of DMT. I think it's really important, the work that Halogen is doing. We all understand the potential for therapeutic benefit with psychedelics, but the reality is that we spend a lot of time focusing on the positives, but there are still as of yet unknowns as to how psychedelics affect individuals. And so we do know that there are potential propensities for negative adverse reaction with regard to psychedelics. And so the work that Halogen is doing is developing out a genetic basis for assessing some of the risks that go into psychedelic use. And so there are five biomarkers specific to psychedelic usage, three risk factor analysis biomarkers, as well as a couple of biomarkers that are specific to strength of response with regard to serotonergic molecules, as well as ketamine. And so what we're trying to do is develop out a safety framework for individuals and physicians that are looking to both prescribe and use psychedelics so that there is at least an additional layer of safety so that before anyone embarks on what is ultimately a really profoundly transformational experience, they do have a basis of understanding the characterization of some of the risks associated with it. Are issues like heart disease something that would rule out perhaps getting treatment? The clinical data doesn't support that though. There is potential heart-related consideration. Ultimately, these molecules are very 
very affecting. They are very powerful and profound and like strapping into an experience. I don't like to equate it to a roller coaster, but as you do undergo some of these experiences, the heart will begin to race. There are certainly qualities to the experience that make it very profound and potentially exciting, but also sort of heart racing. That's not currently something that we're hugely concerned with, but it is something to consider, certainly. I'm sure many of our listeners might be interested in, in a more designed experience down the road where you can structure the environment, sort of like a virtual reality that's created. So is that something you're looking to develop down the road? Absolutely. I think medicine is moving more and more towards the area of personalization. No patient class is monolithic. There are variances even within a subcategory of depressives or addiction sufferers. And so we understand that even from the perspective of an addiction sufferer, not everyone is necessarily a depressive characteristic set of addiction. Some are more high energy, gregarious and verbose. And so there are different therapeutic approaches that are needed to be employed in preparation for a psychedelic experience. And so we're trying to develop out the basis of understanding to look at individual patient variants so that not only can the drug be more uniquely prescribed to them, but also the preparatory therapies that precede any sort of psychedelic intervention. How do we, from a genetics perspective, as well as a brain imaging perspective, understand what the individual patient variance is and create a entire course of care for that person so that it doesn't just rely on a drug to do something, but rather Rather, it helps inform the physician as to which drug is best suited to that person's genetic basis, as well as their brain imaging or phenotype basis. And then also, how do you shape the course of care, whether it's cognitive behavioral therapies or motivational enhancement therapies? How do you address the established baseline so that you can have a more potent potential for effect? You increase the potential for maximal effect from the psychedelic. So that's why we're making those investments into the world of genetics, as well as EEG, so that we have a more stronger empirical basis of assessment upon which the physician can direct a very directed and personalized course of care. Which would include a variety potentially of psychotherapies and perhaps some variations in dose of the drug or designs of the drug. So maybe there'll be more than one type of drug in your portfolio with a DMT base. Am I correct? Absolutely. Yeah. We are looking to that where based on the individual patient assessment, how we might modulate the course of the DMT treatment. But we are also looking to develop out this technology platform, both the genetics as well as the EEG, to service not only our own internal DMT-related research and development functions, but also create a gold standard set of assessment tools and an intelligence platform, for lack of a better term, that physicians and therapists can use in prescribing a whole host of other drugs, potentially. Ultimately, we do see a market opportunity due to an unaddressed concern within the psychedelic industry that we're trying to develop to for so that we can provide that to other psychedelic practitioners before our DMT product becomes available. We ultimately want to start developing the gold standard in terms of safety and assessment tools for the entire psychedelic industry. Are there age-specific therapies, for instance, a 20 or 30-year-old maybe, for a variety of reasons, including years on the planet, be wired differently than an individual in their 40s, 50s, or 60s seeking therapy? Is it too late in your 60s, for instance? I don't think the literature supports any idea that there's a point at which you age out of viability of psychedelics. In a recent study with psilocybin, there was no outside age exclusion range. One might assume that there's a certain point at which these experiences become overly challenging or profound, but the reality is, is that I don't think that need changes. 
I think whether a person arrives at the age of 50 or 60 needing some form of introspection so that they can reorder their lives, one might even argue that if you arrive at age 60 with belief systems and perspectives that are detrimental to you that have been really forged in fire and made semi-permanent over the course of time, I think the argument can be made that those people are, if not more in need of these things, there's nothing barring them from inclusion into these types of therapies. And from a physiological perspective, we don't believe that DMT has any potential physical side effects that would preclude anyone from partaking in the experience, even with those sort of cardiac concerns. These are all things that will certainly be addressed in clinical trials, but we don't see there having to be any reason to exclude people in a more advanced age range. What have you done in the area of virtual reality that may augment everything involving research with clinical and ethical use of DMT. It seems like a fascinating world to delve into and it could be a great tool. Yeah, we're just at the beginnings of that investigation, but we do understand that the treatment for any number of psychiatric disorders, including addiction-related disorders, it's a longer pathway. It's not just walk in off the street, get prescribed an experience. There is a very necessary and important preparatory phase. So working with our EG partners and within the realm of VR, we're looking to leverage those are immersive capabilities of VR to create therapeutic assistance to the psychedelic program. So working on ways to incorporate VR to better prepare someone for that psychedelic experience, both in terms of exposure as well as specific for pre-treatment therapeutic design. So that's an area that we're very interested in. And then following the psychedelic experience, having people already engendered to the utilization technology for more generalized mental health purposes, creating a fun, inviting, and immersive way for them to continue on in their self-discovery journey following a psychedelic endeavor. It would be interesting to see if in the future you could help design VR related to this through the mapping of the brain done through those EEGs while people are, let's say, under the ethical influence of DMT. Your thoughts on that? No, that is certainly an area of great interest for us. And before we signal to the world exactly what our plans are, just know that we're very deeply interested in what constitutes a psychedelic experience, of course, ethically or administered psychedelic experience to see if there are specific learnings from that experience that might be translatable into other areas of therapeutics. So without saying too much, that is certainly an area that we're looking into quite deeply. What the future holds for those findings, we're eager to find out. This is an investment-based program, as you know, and you're a sponsor of that program. So what would you say to potential investors, investors interested in biotech in general is looking for an opportunity right now, taking a look at Entheon Biomedical for the first time? Entheon Biomedical, though we're a psychedelic drug discovery company, we also understand that in order for us to be a viable biotech company, we do have to take a multi-pronged approach. And so we're making investments in the value chain that not only service that ultimate product delivery within about four or five year time frame, but we're also developing out the data practices as well as the investing in the technology platforms that will not only arm our clinical development, but create diagnostic and prescriptive tools that have application not only to our own product, but also to the industry in general, creating scientific value, but also for Entheon, revenue generating opportunities to service a much broader range of psychedelic uh, service providers than just DMT might. And even though DMT is in 
in our estimation, the best psychedelic to use for a variety of mental health addiction-related issues. We do see a place for other molecules like ketamine, MDMA, and psilocybin. So to service that reality, we're investing in the tools that will complement those already established molecular candidates and give physicians the tools that they need to make really informed, confident prescribing as well as uh, therapeutic choices. Well, Tim, it's always great to catch up with you. Thank you so much for joining us today on the program. I appreciate it, Ellis. Thank you. I've been chatting with Timothy Coe, the CEO of Entheon Biomedical, trading in the U.S. as ENTBF and in Canada on the CSE as ENBI. Go to the company's website, entheonbiomedical.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Would you like to be one of the first to see who we are following? Subscribe to our audio newsletter. It's free. ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me for a conversation with Jordan Trimble, President, and Jonathan Weisblatt, the new CEO of Rockridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange and RRRLF in the U.S. Rockridge Resources is a publicly traded mineral exploration company focused on the acquisition, exploration, and development of mineral resource properties in Canada, specifically copper and battery metal projects. The company's flagship is the Knife Lake Project, located in Saskatchewan, which is ranked as one of the best mining jurisdictions in the world. Meet the new CEO and catch up with the latest news on Rock Ridge Resources. Jordan, John, welcome to the program. Nice to have you both with us today. Thanks for having us, Ellis. Jordan, we have a very significant announcement with the addition of Jonathan Weisblatt to the company as Chief Executive Officer. Let's talk about Jonathan first off and why the decision to make a change. Sure. We needed to beef up the senior management with some more capital markets experience, in particular on investing in the resource sector, knowing what makes these companies successful, having a network that we can tap into going forward. And John, he'll he'll talk about his past, but he's been in the asset management industry, in particular in the resource investment industry for a number of years, previously at Sprott and then at a family office up until recently. And got to know John over the last year and we built a great working relationship. He complements the strong technical expertise that we already have at the board and at the technical advisory board level. We have some great geologists and technical people working with us. Grant Ewing, who was previously the CEO, will continue on as a consulting geologist. And we have our geosciences contractor, TerraLogic, that's handling all the exploration and work at our Knife Lake Copper project. So John brings a skill set that we felt we needed. And without further ado, John, why don't you give the audience a quick background on your last couple of decades working in Toronto? Sure, Ellis. Thank you very much for the opportunity to join the call today. I've been hanging around Bay Street for the last two decades. Most of that time I've spent as an institutional portfolio manager. I spent 10 years working on a very successful multi-strategy hedge funds in the earlier part of the 2000s. A big part of our, our mandate was was to invest capital across the, the spectrum of resources, just given where we were in the past cycle. So my knowledge and abilities to invest in the resource space, predominantly in the Canadian market, is pretty strong. From there, I was recruited and hired to run Sprott Asset Management's flagship Canadian equity fund. And I did that for about four years. And while at Sprott, I had the pleasure of being exposed to probably the best resource investors in this country from all corners of the spectrum. So 
that was a great learning experience. Had uh, access to a bunch of great minds over there and learned a lot. And when I was done working at Sprott for four plus years, I was recruited to go and, and run some capital at one of the largest family offices in Canada, where I did so for the past couple of years. Probably about 12 months ago, just as my investment thesis and my views on the global macro were starting to transition, we were entering a period of great uncertainty with the rising pandemic issues we were see- we were experiencing. I was forced to take the view that there was going to be a bunch of stimulus coming into the markets and how would I position my portfolios and the portfolios of my clients. And one of the answers that I came to was looking at hard assets again, which I hadn't done for the, the previous four years in a great way and started to maneuver the portfolios into precious metals, base metals, and some other hard assets. And it seemed to be the right call. Gold at the time was much lower than it was today, as was silver and some of the other precious metals. I met Jordan, who's the president of Rockridge about 12 months ago. And Jordan and I started to build a good working relationship. We were introduced to one another through a mutual contact. And it started to become clear that my thesis about the macro environment was turning out to be an accurate one. And Jordan was educating me on the very exciting projects within Rockridge. And the more I learned about the company, the more it fit into my overall view of the macro environment. And we continue to discuss the opportunities that might exist. And it's ultimately resulted in me joining up as the CEO. Very excited to join the company. There's two incredibly exciting assets within Rockridge. Flagship property, Knife Lake, is something that I'm really looking forward to digging my heels into. Thank you, John, and welcome to the company. So let's take a look at that macro thesis for just a couple of minutes, if you don't mind. You've got Mm -hmm. gold, you've got copper. Usually these are converse parts of the sack that can't exist at the same time. So in your opinion, they can exist at the same time. And that time is now, I assume, due to all the stimulus happening in North America, in the U.S. especially, and due to the fact that we are becoming more electric than ever. Does that fit your thesis? Absolutely. So if you go back about a decade ago, I took the view on electric vehicles would start to take market share amongst the global auto fleet. And I was a bit early then. My portfolios had made some investment in the lithium space and some electric vehicle metals at the time. That turned out to be quite early, but my knowledge was quite strong and sophisticated at the time. If you fast forward 10 years, the demand environment for electric vehicle metals, such as copper, lithium, et cetera, cobalt, now seems to be the time where demand is starting to play. If you look specifically at the copper sector, there's been a lack of capital investment for the last five or six years, a significant one. And as we come through the tail end of this pandemic and demand starts to return, you're going to see a real supply gap and a price response. So really excited about the copper markets. Gold is a completely different animal altogether. I've become more bearish on the US dollar with the rising growth in in stimulus. As the US dollar rolls, you'll start to see the natural hedge and the flow of capital move into the precious metal sector. So there is a congruence here within Rockridge that makes a lot of sense to me. And that congruence is the intersection between gold and copper. I favor both the metals and Like I said, the two assets within Rockridge make it an extremely exciting company. There's many new companies and old companies that could use great talent such as yourself. You've selected this one to work with, and I'm curious as to the why, aside from the fact that you've got a great relationship with Jordan. That's a great question. So every great investment starts with a great management team and a great board of directors. You can have an A-quality asset and a C-quality management team and board, and the end result is a C-quality investment every single time. So what 
what we have at Rockridge is not only two high quality assets, but a board that's been put together by Jordan and his team and a management group that's both technically sophisticated and sophisticated in capital markets. You combine those two together. And like I said, my experience has always led me to a very successful outcome. Let's talk about the recent news at Knife Lake with the Copper Project and the plans for the drill program going forth. It's fairly significant. We spoke about this, Ellis, in a little while since the last interview where we focused in on Knife Lake and the plans there. As you recall, we acquired this project from a prospect generator, Eagle Plains, large shareholder of Rockridge back in early 2019, a completely different copper market than what we're in right now. I think it was trading around $2.70 or $2.80. We're now north of $4. So it's completely changed the outlook for the project, the existing resource that is there, the financeability of the project, something that I truly believe creates an incredible value proposition currently with the company trading around a seven and a half million Canadian market cap. But just to refresh the listeners on the project itself, it's a VMS predominantly copper project in Saskatchewan, just northwest of Flin Flon. Flin Flon Mining Camp is one of the most prolific VMS jurisdictions in the world. It's a project that had a fair bit of exploration done between 1970 and 2000. They delineated a small, shallow resource, again, mostly copper, but polymetallic, some precious metal content in there, as well as some cobalt. A lot of the historical exploration was just focused at the deposit area, which is exciting because not a lot of work was done regionally, certainly no modern exploration. And that's really what we're looking to do is to go into projects in Canada and good jurisdictions that were simply overlooked for a number of recent years for whatever reason and apply some modern techniques and exploration methodologies to hopefully yield additional discoveries. We went in in 2019 when we initially acquired the option for the project and we did some infill drilling to update a resource estimate, but we didn't do much regional work. And just recently with the completed geophysics, which we announced last week and some field work that we did in late 2019, we identified and refined a handful of regional targets. And we believe there's going to be more discoveries made on this project. Very rarely do you have a one-off VMS deposit. Typically, they occur in clusters. Any VMS system, you typically find multiple deposits. It's a remobilized VMS deposit as well. So it's come from a primary source. It's yet to be discovered. We're hoping that we can go out and we can find that. So the plan, as per the news last week, there'll be updates on this over the coming weeks, is to go in and drill test several different target areas in and around the deposit. And regionally, we have a minimum of 16 100 meters planned, could look to expand that if need be. But that should give us a good shot at hopefully honing in on one of these, what we believe to be several other deposits that have yet to be discovered proximal to the main deposit area. With the addition of John to the board here as CEO of the company, how does that change your calculus going forward for the next year. Again, like I said, I think it adds a new element to the board. As John pointed out, is you need a good mix of both technical, geological experience and expertise, which we have covered, but you also need management and capital markets experience. And John brings a couple of decades of that to the company. So I think it'll help out very much with the progress that we're making corporately, being able to raise capital, bringing new eyeballs to the story. John's based in Toronto. Our corporate head office is here in Vancouver. So it gives us some representation out east, and I think it'll go a long way to continuing to build the company up. 
In full disclosure, I'm a shareholder of this company and also another company that you're the CEO and president of Sky Harbor Resources, a uranium-based company. You understand the energy market, Jordan, very well. Look, I'm needless to say a huge bull on any metal that is required for the electrification that we're seeing happening globally. So copper really is the common denominator in all of this, in this massive push for electrification and for going carbon neutral. It truly is the ultimate green metal, if you will. And you just look at talking about electric vehicles versus internal combustion engines. You require three and a half to four times as much copper in an EV than you do in a traditional internal combustion engine. So as we see these macro trends continue to unfold and play out, copper is going to become ever more paramount to that rollout. Having a copper project in a good jurisdiction, in a safe jurisdiction, Saskatchewan consistently ranked in the top five mining jurisdictions globally by the Fraser Institute is a huge bonus as well. And so we're excited. We think the timing is great here, especially with the copper market moving as it has recently. We think there's still a lot of upside from the current prices. And we're out there looking to make the next major discovery in Canada and in Saskatchewan. And you're trading at about 14 cents Canadian a share that's around 10 or 11 U.S., Great potential upside. What is the share structure like? Sure. So we just closed a financing about two and a half million Canadians. So we're fully funded for all the upcoming exploration and drill plans we have at Knife Lake. There's now about 73 million shares issued and outstanding in the company. So it's like I said, it's still very compelling in terms of the value proposition at about seven and a half to eight million dollar enterprise value. I think there is a pretty good case to be had that with success with this drill program, especially it yields a new discovery that you'll see a re-rating on the stock. If I can interject as well, if you look at the Canadian copper junior peer group, they're trading at around 10 cents per pound of total resource on a copper equivalent basis. Rockridge trades at 2 cents. If you look at some of the closest comparables in the Saskatchewan and Manitoba markets, they're trading above 10 cents per pound. There is significant opportunity for a valuation re-rating here. And one of the very reasons that I'm super excited to be joining the company at this time, it's one thing to help be an allocator of capital to these companies, but it's another thing to be on the inside of these businesses and and to help them grow organically and externally from the inside out. So super excited, lots of valuation upside, and think this is a great opportunity for new shareholders to come in and make great returns for their portfolios. Jordan Trimble, Jonathan Weisblatt, thank you so much for joining me today on the program. I'm very excited about this news and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I've been speaking with Jordan Trimble, President and Jonathan Weisblatt, CEO of Rock Ridge Resources, trading as ROCK on the TSX Venture Exchange and RRRLF in the United States. I'm Ellis Martin. Subscribe to the Ellis Martin newsletter. It's free. Go to ellismartinreport.com and fill out the quick and easy pop-up form. If you're interested in sponsoring the Ellis Martin Report, contact us directly, martinreports at gmail.com. That's martinreports at gmail.com. Join us next time for more opportunities to discover on the Ellis Martin Report. Meanwhile, subscribe to the Ellis Martin Report. It's easy and it's free. Visit ellismartinreport.com.